Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. Always a pleasure to be able to share positive insights into the human condition. And today we begin with the latest on health and healing. We're talking about watermelon. A study from the University of Connecticut shows that when you eat watermelon or even juice watermelon with the seeds, then it reduces atherosclerosis. That's a big deal because what's one of the common things that we die from? Atherosclerosis causing different types of heart conditions, clogging of our arteries and veins, little pieces of the damage inside those veins and arteries breaking off, causing a clot to the brain, ischemic episode, or to the heart. So if we can reduce the damage done over a lifetime of abuse of our body, especially our arteries and veins, that's good. And watermelon does that. Now, if you were to add one to two lemons to your watermelon, even better. Now, this was an animal model used for the study involving mice with diet-induced high cholesterol. And we know that a high cholesterol diet, there's your meat diet, lots of fat, and arachidonic acid. There's your pain in your muscles, your joints, your swollen ankles. And then, of course, almost always when you're on a high-protein diet, which the average American is, consuming anywhere from 200 to 1,000 percent more protein in a day or even a meal than what your body can require. So we're way over the top when we have too much protein and we have too much meat as a source of the protein and dairy causing lots of allergies. Anyhow, all that leads to inflammation, and that leads to clogging the arteries and stiffening of the arteries, the calcification, arteriosclerosis, and that leads to heart disease, and that leads to death. So, how about a glass of watermelon juice? Maybe during the middle of the day when it's, you know, you, you need more energy, it's really terrific for you. So, these atherosclerotic lesions are impacted by watermelon juice. There's a reduction, significant reduction, in these lesions compared to the control group. Quote, melons have many health benefits. This pilot study has found three interesting health benefits in mouse model of atherosclerosis. Our ultimate goal is to identify bioactive compounds that would improve human health. Well, I'll give you two more. How about beets? Yeah, beet juice. Make your own or buy it. Be careful if you buy because it's frequently high in sodium. And then the pomegranate juice, eating pomegranates or having the juice. A lack of friend or family visits is associated with an increased risk of dying. This is the University of Glasgow, which is in Scotland. What it says is simple. Never being visited by friends or family is associated with an increased risk of dying. This was published in the British Medical Journal. The authors suggest that their findings could be used to help identify patients at a higher risk of dying due to social factors and to develop more effective interventions to combat the increased risk of death associated with social isolation. Now, we're just not talking about people in nursing homes. We're talking about people, period, living in their normal lives. I remember when I was out in the field filming and directing Poverty, Inc., and if you haven't seen it, please watch it because I'm doing a sequel to it now. I start next week to finish off that sequel because it took 
from 2008 up until 2014 to finish it because everything kept changing. And uh, I remember I was interviewing a who's who of all the people in economics and and, and sociologists. And I, one of the professors I interviewed, I had to bring him back four times. He kept saying, over the last five years, I've been interviewed four times. And I said, yes. And we appreciate it. But things keep changing. And he agreed. That was Professor Michael Hudson. Really brilliant man. In any case, we need to take a look at how many people, and not at an older age, but even younger people, who are isolated for whatever legitimate reason. And now, more than ever, we have isolation because people don't have the family structure they once had. They don't have that. They don't, they're not raised today as much in a group or with extended family. And uh, sometimes they wake up and they're the only one that's going to be with them that day. You're with yourself. And that's unfortunate. What are the solutions? How would you go about helping people who live in isolation? We're talking about tens of millions of very lonely people. In fact, I'm dealing with that as uh, in a new documentary. In fact, we're starting that documentary next week because that frequently leads to addictions, but not just alcohol or drugs or medications for depression and anxiety, but also other forms of addiction. In any case, what are your solutions? I'd like to hear them. Give us a call at 888-874-4888. If you feel you have something that and many of you do, I'm sure, have something that would help this. And what we're talking about is a lack of healthy social interactions. Interactions are essential. Okay, because if you don't, you have a higher risk of dying from any cause, any cause. Overall increased mortality was strongly, in fact, far more associated with low levels of objective measures of social interac interactions compared to low levels of subjective measures. All right, so just saying. Now, from the University of Madrid in Spain, a team of researchers has named specific personality traits common among long-lived people. And this was published in the Journal of Happiness Studies. They interviewed 14,000 participants who were 100 to 107 years old. How about that? And the researchers evaluated personality traits to find that these participants commonly exhibited 19 traits, among them gratitude for life, for everything they had, they, they, they were appreciative, enthusiasm for education, being active, having a wonderful curiosity, and high intelligence and happiness. The predominant, number one, observed trait of people living over 100 was curiosity. Humor, religious faith, cheerfulness, and courage rank second in importance. And such qualities are crucial for keeping one healthy. Because are you more likely to make a healthy choice if you're happy or sad? If you're feeling that somehow 
you've been abused or neglected and you feel like a victim, or you're more likely as a victim to make a healthy or unhealthy choice. Now, just as a caveat, back in 1970, I, wanted, I asked the director of the Institute of Applied Biology, where I was just as a junior scientist, youngest person there, I asked, what would you think if I traveled around the world to different countries where they're known for longevity and interviewed the people to see what I could find that goes beyond what we expect and what we think contributes longevity? He said, well, that's never been done. Do it. I was able to meet with the royal family in Hansa, the Hansakut, and they were the longest lived documented uh, group of people in the world. And uh, they, were, they were up in the mountains, high up in the Himalayas, is where they lived, in these valleys, 10, 8, 10, 12,000 feet up. They lived long lives, were very, very healthy. But then I went down to the, the jungles of Brazil. I went into the Blue Mountains of Jamaica, all over. I, I was everywhere, in the countryside, in the Alps, in Italy, in Spain, in France and uh, Ireland, Scotland, in the United States and farms versus the city. And what I found was this, and this is important, really important, as a foundational value. If you took the best diet, I mean a really healthy diet, either a vegan diet or a Mediterranean diet, and leave, left out the meat in the Mediterranean diet, if you had the Okinawa diet and the Creek diet, these were considered the healthiest diets in the world. Add 15% to what it impact, how it impacts your, your life. Then if you exercise on a regular basis, not over-exercise, but exercise, doing at least four miles of training a day, six days a week, that's 15%. If you dealt with stress in really, really positive manners, biofeedback, meditation, uh, that adds 15%, so you're not walking around distressed. And environmental factors, the health and quality of the environment in which you live. If you're living around pollutants, if you're living where there's a lot of air pollution, for example, or soil, water pollution, add in about 5%. Now you're about more or less 55%. Okay, if you add all that together, you will reduce your risk of certain diseases, but you're not going to live a whole lot longer. The single factor that determines from my research, and it took me five years of going out and coming back and going out and coming back, was happiness. A sense of fulfillment with your life, meaning and purpose a sense of joy. And it was just so amazing when I was interviewing some of the oldest people that I'd ever met. They weren't afraid of dying because they hadn't been afraid of living. They took risks that we all have to. They made mistakes. They learned from those mistakes. And they were so okay at the end. Remember, there's one way of looking at life that everything's an existential threat. You live with this existential angst, this sense of incompleteness, what I call the big empty. But also, 
there's a sense of well-being that comes from having an authentic, legitimate, constructive life at whatever level you're choosing to live. And that's happiness. Happiness, I found out, was, and the purpose within that happiness, was 45% of the equation of longevity and disease. So where do you think I begin all of my protocols? With the symptoms of a life lived at some level out of balance? No, not at all. I begin with a person's perceptions of themselves, society, their life. And that's where you're able to create a foundation that helps people. Because, hey, I was speaking to people up in, for example, the Italian Alps and over in the Spanish and French countryside. Never took a vitamin, didn't exercise, and didn't know meditation or had never done yoga. So how is it then, based upon our very simplistic linear model of longevity, that uh, we had missed this? But we had. So just to share that with you. And that's the latest on health and healing. We're going to take a break and come right back. Please stay with us. I've selected some video clips to share with you that give part of an answer of our major crisis in all areas, whether it's digital currency that is now happening in Europe, in Australia that's coming here, it's happening in Canada, and what it means. Because most people are not focused on it in the United States. And also, they just try to pass a piece of legislation. I don't know yet if they did last week in Congress that would allow all, demand all new cars have a cutoff switch. So literally, a federal agency could stop your car. You couldn't start it if you did something that they didn't like. Why in the world would any reasonable person want to vote for that, yet Democrats and Republicans alike were for it, knowing that we're already an overly monitored society? So I'm taking that and a lot of other things are going wrong and trying to give you a deeper perspective. All right? And today I'm going to start that. I'm going to share clips, but then I'm going to show you the backstory, what you're not told anywhere in the media or by the talking heads. We're going to begin by taking a look at something that has just played out over the weekend where the British Prime Minister, who's a, almost a billionaire, comes from that ruling elite, the uh, kind of the, the noble class of Great Britain. They simply have more money than everyone else, so therefore they don't have to live like anyone else, not just in Great Britain, but around the world. They don't apologize for how they've made mistakes historically, and so it's not likely that the same people are going to apologize for making mistakes today. So this is going to be a more in-depth look at why Britain is doomed to never learn from history. Let's go to the clip. King Charles has been in Kenya this week, and he's been trying to make amends for Britain's colonial crimes. It is the intimacy of our shared history that has brought our people together. However, we must also acknowledge the most difficult times of our long and complex relationship. The wrongdoings of the past are a cause of the greatest sorrow and the deepest regret. 
There were abhorrent and unjustifiable acts of violence committed against Kenyans as they waged, as you said at the United Nations, a painful struggle for independence and sovereignty. And for that, there can be no excuse. In coming back to Kenya, it matters greatly to me that I should deepen my own understanding of these wrongs and that I meet some of those whose lives and communities were so grievously affected. None of this can change the past, but by addressing our history with honesty and openness, we can perhaps demonstrate the strength of our friendship today. So the news here is that King Charles didn't offer quite an apology, but he did express regret about Britain's past. And we should talk about what Britain's past in Kenya is. Britain began colonizing the land that would become Kenya um, from 1888, and British authorities would go on to forcibly take land, pen the native population in reserves, introduce forced labor, and commit all of the other injustices associated with colonialism. But specifically, King Charles was referencing Britain's response to the Mau Mau uprising. The Mau Mau, formerly called the Kenya Land and Freedom Army, um, were a militant group that fought British rule throughout the 1950s. They took up arms and in their struggle killed a number of civilians. And the British response was fierce. They bombed Kenyan towns and cities where they believed the Mau Mau lived. They interned over a million Kenyans in barbed wire villages where food and water was limited and where movement was heavily restricted. And over 100,000 people suspected of being part of the Mau Mau were rounded up and put in concentration camps. This is a former detainee who had been a member of the Kenya Africa Union, so an organization that wasn't the Mau Mau, describing his experience. <laughs> In their repression of the Mau Mau uprising, the British killed over 11,000 people, the vast majority of them not involved in armed resistance. And it was all in the name of wiping out what they called a terrorist group. This is how the uprising was covered in British newsreels at the time. In Nairobi, capital of Kenya, Europeans and Africans still walk the streets in fear of the dreaded Mau Mau. For it is that band of fanatics whose bloody deeds have cast a dark shadow across the face of Kenya. Troops are in the streets of Nairobi. Sir Evelyn Baring, the governor, salutes the men of the Lancashire Fusiliers who have flown in to help clear his colony of the Mau Mau menace, which has struck fear into Kenya's very heart. A black cloud of suspicion hangs over all in Kenya. And until the Mau Mau are destroyed, the innocent too must suffer.
So we're presented with a terrorist group committed to a reign of terror. Of course, there is no mention of why they might have been fighting or why occupation and colonialism might be at the root of this. And the British journalist at the end there tells us, until the terrorists are destroyed, the innocent must inevitably suffer. The innocent must inevitably suffer. Aaron, we like to think we've moved on from media coverage like this, but can you think of any contemporary parallels, any other examples where we've got people dismissed as terrorists and people justifying the collective punishment of a civilian population until that terrorist group, or so-called terrorist group, is destroyed? Just a few, Michael. Just a few. And also, with regards to Mau Mau in Kenya, there are also a few conservative, or rather a few Labour MPs, who led the national debate in terms of the truth of the matter. Barbara Castle went to Kenya. She said what is happening there is awful. She compared it to the Gestapo under the Third Reich. That was what Barbara Castle did. You might not agree or disagree, but that's what she did. Um, and she highlighted appalling, appalling atrocities there. We don't know how many people died. There's a great book by Caroline Elkins. I've got it written here. Uh, Britain's Gulag, which was the most recent... Uh, sorry, that was the first book she did. Legacy of Violence which came out in 2022. Massive book. I read it a couple of years ago. Uh, I think I probably read it before it came out. I read like a proof version. She gets to do, gets to do that when you're you know, a journalist. It's really long book, six, 700 pages. Fantastic, fantastic book. Amazing book. I read the first one, which I think came out in 2005, six, and then that one. She's a Harvard academic, a hugely, hugely impressive historian. And I think if you're interested in Kenya, what happened, Carolyn Elkins is the place to start. So that's the first parallel, Michael, with what we have today, um, is that we have certain Labour MPs who say things which are not really very savoury. Shouldn't we be saying that in polite society? Uh, we don't look at them like that now, do we? And I suspect the same will hold true for dissenting MPs who criticise, for instance, Israeli um, security policy and its judgments in the last month. I think in 70, 80 years, those calling it out will be viewed in a certain way. Of course, that's for history to decide, not me. And then, uh, in terms of the sheer numbers, we don't know how many died, but it was a lot. It really was a lot. I mean, Elkins puts the numbers at, you know, hundreds of thousands. Um, but, of course, this was effectively a, a formal civil war as well, so you can't let that entirely at the hands of the British in so much as people were also acting on their behalf. Uh, but it was a really appalling time. Around the same time as that, of course, you've got Malaya, what was called the um, the emergency, the Malaya emergency. Very similar tactics. You have huge numbers of people, most of the civilian population in Malaya, put into concentration camps. Um, they were forcibly resettled. Uh, and also you have the, uh, the use of, um, I believe, Agent Orange, I believe, and maybe Napalm, which, of course, the US then deploys in Vietnam because they look at what the Brits do so successful in Malaya, you're fighting... Uh, in a jungle, counterinsurgency warfare, guerrilla warfare tactics. This is what the Brits do. We're going to do the same in Vietnam. So it wasn't that long ago, Michael, that we were doing some pretty abysmal things. I know people like to say, well, the British Empire was a long time ago. It wasn't that long ago. I mean, this is literally the British Empire. You can at least go to the end of the Second World War. But many people like to think that the worst excesses of British imperialism are 100, 150 years old. Of course, to an extent, that's true. Um, but some pretty barbaric stuff was still happening in, in living memory. You know, we're talking the mid-1950s here. There are many people out there. 
Okay, it goes far beyond the 1950s, but here's the backstory. Here's the larger or overarching story. Comparing the Mau Mau's, and by the way, over 60 other countries had similar kind of rebellions between those who felt that they had been living um, in gulags or concentration camps or detention or members of their community or tribe or group were uh, punished. This has been going on right up till today because for the last 75 years, what we've seen is we've seen this in Israel. And that is unfortunate, that they have not made this identity. And that's why the Sean Hannity's of the world and all the neoliberals and all the people on college campuses saying, here's why you should not boycott anything from Israel, because they have given tens of millions of dollars to legislators, the lobbyists for Israel. They have, we have given them in return $330 billion. And it's a small country. You don't have a lot of population there. Clearly, that money has not been used properly and certainly has not been used to the benefit of the Palestinian people. We also, based upon two separate agreements, the Balfour Agreement and then later uh, in, 19, in 1948, that they would be able to have, in effect, a two-state solution. But that was never what the Zionists wanted. And even Orthodox Jews, I've been watching videos all weekend of Orthodox Jews in, uh, in Israel and other countries just being beaten to a pulp because the ultra-Orthodox don't subscribe to Zionism. And there are other groups that also don't within the Jewish community, and there are a lot of Jews who don't. But we didn't want to look at any of this. We only want to see it as a democracy. What's not a democracy on any level unless everyone is treated equally? Well, clearly, 4.5 million people, 2.3 million in Gaza, and the others in the West Bank, have not been treated equally. Equally means that you're able to have the same quality of life, the same existence. Be able to walk where you want, run where you want, drive where you want, buy what you want, and have quality of life. There is no quality of life. There's only survival at the lowest possible level. And this has not been going on in secret. The whole world sees this. In fact, a resolution just passed last week condemning Israel for its continued bombing, especially of hospitals, is uh, that almost all the other nations of NATO voted for this to stop. The United States and Israel did not. So what does that tell you about our politicians, our State Department, our White House, our Defense Department? Why would they be against this? Because they make money from it, vast amounts of money. In fact, watch the stocks go up, which did in all the defense and armament company, countries, uh, companies, excuse me, when, uh, when this war broke out. Now, what, what Hamas did was an act of terror, and it was a crime against humanity. That, you say, okay, we agree with that. Then why can't you also acknowledge that when, as of this moment, at least 7,000 young children and babies have been killed in the bombings, that's also an act, uh, an act of, against a people that should not have been allowed because the White House and the media are controlling the narrative. The mainstream media is controlling the narrative. So what's happening? Where's the good news in this? The good news is that just recently, and again on the 27th this month, uh, excuse me, on the 17th this month, there's going to be 
a stop work day. Now, 300 cities around the world participated. Millions of people participated. On college campuses, there were die-ins and sit-ins, and these were principally nonviolent, and but they were out there showing solidarity with the Palestinian people. But what happened up to this point? Well, what happened up to this point was, if you said anything that was honest and legitimate in criticism of Israel, you'd be called anti-Semitic. You could be thrown out of school. You could be punished. In some states, you could be arrested, like California, etc. Now, the young people, and these are people of voting age, they're going to cause boycotts of people who are exploiting this for their own financial gain. So this is what we're up to. And this is serious. But now you have awakened a huge number of young minds. In fact, some classes at Columbia University and other universities, there wasn't a single student in the classroom because they're being educated. They're being shown by commentaries, documentaries, film clips of what's happening in Israel. And the backstory of that is this just didn't start uh, with the uh, Hamas raid across that fence. And by the way, I'm going to have you destroy the challenges that Israel didn't know about that. Israel definitely knew about that because some of the guards working in intelligence, two of them survived a massacre. And guess who killed them? Israelis in tanks. There were 20 people, including the uh, uh, Hamas, but there were innocents in there. They were all just blown to pieces. Well, why wasn't that discussed? Why wasn't that acknowledged? Because you cannot give up control of the narrative. So now the younger people are seeing this. The older people don't give a damn. Most of them don't. 90%, 95% of these protests and these boycotts are by young people. But they're the future. And they're going to look at the upcoming election and say, you, State Department, White House, the Democrats, Hillary Clinton, W. Washington Schultz, you all supported Israel and did so with the full support of the media. So we're boycotting that media. They, there's a video. I'm going to play it tomorrow. Inside the New York Times, where all they did was read the names of dead children. And in 40 minutes, they only got up to the age of four. Because the official death count now, based upon all the buildings collapsed and all the bodies inside there, can be as high as 25,000 dead, which mean over half of those are children. So how many bodies have to die before someone says enough and stop? If nothing else, just put a hold on this. Well, if you listen to the legislator from, from uh, Florida, they want to see every Palestinian dead. And she says that. So you want to see 4.5 million from Israel dead. What about the other millions outside of Israel? You want them dead too? You want all Arabs dead? You want all Muslims dead? This is how fanatical and how deranged our legislative process has become and the legislators are. And yet they're looking at who, who puts money in their bank account, who gets them reelected. Well, Palestinians don't. They don't have the money. They're prisoners. But the Jewish lobby does. So now the young people are awake to this. Do you think they're going to not use this in the upcoming vote? They absolutely will. And then the whole story is coming out. All of it. It'll take about a year for this to wind itself out. But everything they're doing now is wrong. That does not undo what was wrong with Hamas. But who created Hamas? 
Netanyahu created Hamas. Israel created Hamas to destroy Arafat and the Palestinian resistance to its independent statehood. Or at least getting out of uh, the the internment camps they've been living in for all these decades. Just a thought. Now, we're go- so don't don't think for a moment that the New York Times and these other papers don't understand when your entire lobby, every square inch of that lobby is filled with young people reading just silently, re- or not silently, they were talking, and the police came in, they didn't know what to do. These people were not rioting, they weren't tearing anything up, they were just reading the names of dead Palestinian children. And uh, so they didn't know what to do. Outside, again, 10,000 people. That's 10,000 people are going to each speak with other people they know. So you want to know what's going to happen next election? Take a look at those people in 300 cities, and it'll be more cities and more people on the 17th. It's growing. The opposition is growing, and that's good. Now we're going to go to uh, Jimmy Dore on two short clips. And this is about Zelensky and Ukraine. Why is this important? Because these same young people also were shown in another video clip, raising money. Everybody had to give money to Ukraine and just send it off to wherever someone was receiving money. The United States government had no money, not a penny, for Detroit or Camden or older people who are are living on money less than what they can survive on or forgiving student debt or any of the other important measures they could use that money to help Americans. Not a penny went to those Americans in great need. Or how about the 16.3 million hungry children in the United States? No money for them. Or what about the 60 million Americans living in abject poverty? Not a penny for them. But the most corrupt country in the world, Ukraine, where everybody steals. Uh, Unlimited. Let them buy another villa. Now, at what point during this whole process did you take a look at Zelensky's name on the Panama Papers before this war happened? In Ukraine, showing that how did he get at $1.1 billion as an actor on a television series? How did he end up with now a $5 million home just purchased in, in an exclusive neighborhood of Egypt and all those other villas in South Beach or in, in the Riviera and in Italy? All these homes all over the world. And he comes hat in hand for more Americans to support him. This will be discussed, but then I've got a backstory to this. Let's go to the clips, please. Everybody, taking the uh, NBC and the rest of the world in the United States to catch up to where a pothead comedian was two and a half years ago. Where's Sean Penn? Where, I've been looking where's for Where's Sean Penn? I, well, Instagram, so, you know, so everybody's turning against the Ukraine war now, even NBC News. You uh, and the United States government. U.S. and European officials have begun quietly talking to the Ukrainian government about what possible peace negotiations with Russia might entail to end the war. They had a peace agreement in March of 2022. There would have never been a war had the United States not uh, said that they were going to put Ukraine in NATO. There would have never been a war had Ukraine's Nazis, Azov Battalion, uh, ramped up their bombing of the Donbass. So there, there, there was this war was provoked by NATO and Ukraine, and they wanted it. And there was a peace deal in place in March of 2022. 
and NATO sent Boris Johnson to Ukraine to squash it. And you know who else squashed it? Uh, the Azov Battalion said if he does a peace deal, they'll hang him from a tree. And we'll see. If, so now we see what happens if he's going to get hung by a tree because now the United States is pushing for a peace deal because it, the tide has turned here in the United States against funding this war. And Ukraine, their entire country, is being run off United States money. We we're paying the salary of their teachers, of their cops, of their firemen, of their doctors. Uh, we're paying their medical bills. We're paying for everything. The United States is. We won't do that for people Jimmy. in the United States, but we'll do it for the most corrupt country in Europe. Why? Because there's a grift involved. You can give that money to the military industrial complex. Go ahead. Pretty sure we paid for the tide of support, too, because I don't remember seeing that in real life. Have we reached the Ukraine war's moment of truth? Because according to this week's Time magazine cover story on Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, Zelensky's inner circle says the war is unwinnable. The article describes Zelensky as delusional for his failure to recognize realities of the battlefield and his unwillingness to consider peace talks with Russia. Now, a new article by entrepreneur David Sachs makes the case that while Time magazine may be on Zelensky's side, Actual time is not. Zelensky himself had this to say on whether the war with Russia has reached a stalemate. I hear you rejecting the characterization by your top general that this is a stalemate. Are you changing strategies, as has been reported? I believe that today, indeed, the situation is difficult. I don't think that this is a stalemate. It's a, it's a check on the, on, the, on the part of the Russian army, but before that we did a lot, we had done a lot, we were in a difficult situation. They thought that they would checkmate us, but this didn't happen. Joining us now to discuss is partner at Kraft Ventures and contributor at Responsible Statecraft, David Sachs. David, thank you for joining us. Good to be here. Are we reaching the point that many um, non-interventionist or uh, skeptics of increased and continued and permanent U.S. support to Ukraine, uh, a situation that was long predicted where Ukraine has no choice but to have a conversation with Russia about what the, the future of, of the contested region will be? Yeah, that's exactly the point that we've reached. Uh, what you've really seen over the past week or so is that the narrative dam around the reality in Ukraine is completely broken, and the truth is now pouring out. It started with that Time Magazine article. Like you said, Zelensky's own aides and advisors said that he was delusional for this, uh, what they said, messianic belief in their ultimate victory. Uh, one of his advisors said, we're out of options, we're not winning, but try telling him that. But that wasn't the end of it. Then you had this NBC News story basically saying that the war was deadlocked, it was in a stalemate. But even more than that, officials said that if Ukraine didn't negotiate by the end of the year, uh, the situation would become urgent. You could almost hear the panic in these unnamed officials' voices. Then you had uh, the New York Times just the other day talking about an open rift that's developed between Zelensky and his commander-in-chief, Zeluzhny. Zeluzhny did an interview with The Economist in which he said the war was a stalemate. Uh, Zelensky disagreed with that uh, in a press conference. And so now the two are openly at odds with each other in the press. So what you see now is that there is no agreement within even 
the Ukrainian senior leadership between Zelensky and his advisors, between Zelensky and his top general about what's happening in the war. But but I, I think that now it, the, the truth is broken out, which is that Ukraine is not winning this war. The counteroffensive has been a failure. And if they don't start doing something different, uh, they're headed for disaster. What do you think? Okay, several things here. First, he is half right. Here's what all American media, all the columnists, all the pro-Zelensky sycophants like Sean Penn, etc. Russia has won this war, could have annihilated everything and everyone, but chose not to. And listen to what Jimmy Dore said in, in the clip. There was a peace agreement reached prior to all this occurring, and all Russia wanted was a guarantee that Zelensky would not take uh, Ukraine into NATO. That's all he wanted. Because if, if Zelensky, if Ukraine became a part of NATO, then that means a conflict against one, an attack against one, is an attack against all NATO members, including the United States, Canada, etc. So that was drafted. Then a separate one was drafted, asking for no property, no land, just certain guarantees uh, that not to be continuing going towards Russia. And they were supposed to sign it. Russia signed it, but then they brought in one of their mouthpieces, Boris Johnson from Great Britain, and he sat down with Zelensky and talked him out of signing it. Because the United States were in it to the end. So he didn't sign it. So just think of it this way. 450,000 dead Ukrainians, and they have no more armed forces. They have no more weapons because Russia's got intelligence satellites, got intelligence on the ground, and every shipment that comes in, they're blowing it up. As a result, uh, Russia has won this. It is inconceivable and inoperable for Zelensky to even survive. He's just turning more people, throwing them right into this meat grinder. All the while, Russia's just waiting because now, they don't, and listen to the lies. Remember, they, they just want to start with uh, Ukraine, then they're going to go to Poland, then they're going to go to uh, Finland and Sweden. They want the whole, no, they didn't. They didn't want to reconstitute the old Soviet Union. But we were lied to. And because we were lied to, we said, yeah, give them money, give them weapons, without thinking of the consequences. Where do you think those are going? But nobody cared. Nobody wanted to know. In fact, the Democrats, as corrupt as they can be, chose to kill a bill that would have allowed a special inspector general to track down where the money is going, where it has gone, where the weapons went, because we're finding weapons now all over the world. It's a terrorist group that we had given to uh, Zelensky's forces. So they have to sign an agreement, but this time it'll probably be excluding the Donbass area, which are Russian-speaking and it'll be to denazify the country because the Azov Battalion, who are full-blown Nazis, they're not neo-Nazis, they're Nazis. These are killers. But they threatened Zelensky. You sign an agreement, then this will hang you. And these guys could do it. So now it is so bad that finally, and this didn't happen by accident, that Time Magazine's Man of the Year last year, just a year ago, was Zelensky. And this year, the same reporter for Time Magazine showed him to be a fool, uh, 
a person who shouldn't be in power. So then the other mainstream media that takes this order from the deep state, they started aligning also with the idea we got to leave. So they're planning a Vietnam type strategy, get us out of there and forget it ever existed. That's what's happening now. So this war for all intents and purposes is over. The attrition rate is just too high. Russia has 750,000 troops standing by in massive amount of uh, arms and equipment, state of the art, and it's nuclear power. It is threatened to use none of those thus far because it wouldn't, because it knows the consequences to the rest of the world. But it is going to end Zelensky. You'll probably see him either assassinated or retired in one of his multiple villas with no one asking, how'd you pay for this? What are you famous for? Before the war, what was he most famous for? He and another person played a piano with their genitals as an actor. Yep, true story. So, one more clip before I give my most important commentary. And this is someone who disappointed a lot of people, myself included. Telsey Gabbard switches from anti-war to justify Israel's war crimes. Let's listen to this clip from Jimmy Dore. It's a short clip supported Tulsi Gabbard in her campaign in 2020. And the reason why was because she was the only person and certainly the only person elected who was telling the truth about Syria. The Syrian war was just like Iraq, was just like Libya, was just a garbage war that was manufactured to funnel money to the military industrial complex and for fossil fuel companies. That's what this was about. Right. And so she was willing to tell the truth about it. And she was elected and she was in the military. People forget. Why did they all turn on Tulsi Gabbard? I'll tell you why everybody turned on Tulsi Gabbard when she was the darling, when she endorsed. She stepped down as the vice chair of the Democratic uh, National Committee because she didn't like how they were treating Bernie Sanders and she wanted to endorse Bernie Sanders. And she was right. And she was a hero to everybody for doing that. And then when did they turn on her? When she started to tell the truth about the Syrian war. When she started to tell the truth about the war is when the media turned against her. And then all the Elizabeth Warren supporters turned against her. And then even Bernie Sanders turned against her because he's a bitch for, uh, for, uh, for the military industrial complex too. That's what happened. That's why people turned against Tulsi Gabbard. She was always a supporter of Medicare for all. That's a lie when they say she wasn't. And the reason why they turned on her, meaning the Democrats, the lefties, people who were former Bernie supporters, Elizabeth Warren, the reason why they turned on her is because she told the truth about our foreign policy. And that's what made her such a hero to me. And here it is right here. Look at this. She, she used to say this. Israel needs to stop using live ammunition in its response to unarmed protesters in Gaza. It has resulted in over 50 dead and thousands seriously wounded. And that's... The Tulsi Gabbard, that's the good Tulsi. And this is from before the... Yeah, two, uh, this 2018. Is, yeah this yeah. is from 2018. Right, yeah. And so here she is now, and it's, <sighs> it's, it's another RFK Jr. It's like, how could you be so right? <clears throat> how could you be so right about the Ukraine war? How could you be so right about Joe Biden and the Democrats, the money in politics? How could you be so right about all those Syria... How could you be so right about that and then be so wrong about this? So here, let's play it. I don't know if Kamala knows what she's up to, uh, but the reality here is when you look at things like uh, what Representative Cory Bush is saying, what the squad is saying, what so many of these other people are saying who are accusing Israel of committing a genocide, it, it is the height of hypocrisy because they're... Wait a minute. 
Jesus. Hang on, we'll a little Apologists more. and supporters of these Islamist Hamas terrorists Islamist. who are calling for a genocide, the extermination of all Jews, not just in Israel, but around the world. And we're seeing this being carried out by these violent. So she's saying the squad and the people supporting Palestine are the height of hypo- hypocrites, the height of hypocrisy. Did the squad commit genocide? Wow, I didn't think they could get anything done. <laughs> I wonder why she. So she was labeled an Assad toady yeah. when obviously this sounds like she's an APAC toady. Yeah. Okay. Now he mentioned Robert Kennedy Jr., who's being trashed in a lot of the liberal media. Mainstream liberal media knows that he's a real threat to Biden in an election, and he can probably win. But younger people are going to him. Lots of minority people are supporting him. But now, Jimmy Dore is throwing Tulsi Gabbard out and Robert Kennedy Jr. out. Before you do that, think about this. Would the world, what would the world have been like today if, if the one person who could have changed everything was voted in by the liberals? The new Democrats, as Clinton and Al Gore called themselves, we wouldn't have any wars, we wouldn't have invaded Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, we wouldn't have allowed the war in Ukraine. We wouldn't have destroyed Yugos- uh, Venezuela. None of that would happen. We wouldn't have. Uh, we wouldn't have all this homelessness. We wouldn't have a council culture uh, and getting laws passed because he was very good at protecting Americans. He did more to protect Americans with more laws, the Safe Bill, Safety Bill Act and Clean Water Act and Clean Air Act, etc than any legislator in American history. That was Al Gore. Uh, excuse me, uh, that was uh, Ralph Nader. Al Gore didn't do anything except smile and look presidential, and Clinton, we know about him. And so don't throw Tulsi up because she's wrong on this issue, since she is wrong on this issue. You know, just say, I'm, I'm sorry, I did not know all the facts, I did not do my homework. I should have. I should have gone to Israel, spent time on the West Bank, spent time in Gaza, saw how they were living, then looked at the history and looked at how many people had been murdered, how, what they were sub- subjugated to, before I made open my mouth. She didn't. Okay. But on other issues, she certainly has been right. But now let's look about Robert Kennedy. So here's my suggestion to everyone out there, including Sarah G., uh, Here's what you did. Is Robert Kennedy on the right side of this issue when he's supporting Israel and not Palestinian people? No, he is not. But don't throw him out because that one issue. Name me a perfect person. Name me a perfect politician. Everyone has limitations. But here's what we don't fear because we know he's on the right side. So look at what's on the right side of Robert Kennedy. Look at his current goals and look at what he's done historically. Let me just remind everyone. He prosecuted union-busting corporations that labor can organize and negotiate fair wages. He expands free children's health care and child care to millions of families with programs like that pioneered by the state of New Mexico and drop monthly housing costs by $1,000 per family, make home ownership affordable by backing a 3% home mortgage with tax-free bonds. It's currently 8%. Housing market is crashing. 
He would cut energy prices by restricting natural gas exports. He would secure the border and bring illegal immigration to a halt, which is a disaster by any measure, so that undocumented migrants won't undercut wages of Americans, including migrants who came here legally and cutting their, their wages. He would rein in the military spending and use the resources to fund infrastructure, de-ghettoize America, have universal health care, improve higher education, improve child care, and improve domestic prosperity. He would reverse the chronic disease epidemic that is a $4 trillion drag on families and the American economy. He would clean out the corruption in Washington, D.C., which funnels so much of our nation's wealth to giant corporations and billionaires. He would establish addiction healing centers on organic farms across the country. He would make student debt dischargeable in bankruptcy that Bush and uh, Bush and others, including Biden, did not want the students to be able to file bankruptcy. It was all self-serving. Look at who funded them. And he would cut interest rates on student loans to zero. He would cut drug costs by 50% to bring them in line with other nations. He would shift agricultural subsidies so as to encourage regenerative practices like uh, organic farming and for ranching and that would build up the soil and replenish groundwater and detoxify the land. Well, all while producing just as much food as conventional farmers and earning a decent livelihood. He would reduce toxic waste, industrial poisons, and pesticides that make people and ecosystems sick. He would protect wild lands from further development by curbing mining, logging, drilling, oil drilling, and uh, suburban sprawl. He would restore the USDA and the EPA to their proper role of protecting health and the environment. He would completely overhaul the FDA, the CDC, and Health and Human Services and remove all those agencies from corporate capture. He would roll back the secrecy and making government transparent. He would protect whistleblowers and prosecute officials who abuse the public trust. He would rein in lobbyists and slam shut the revolving door that shunts people from government agencies to lucrative positions in the companies they were supposed to regulate and back again. He would end the imperial military project and refocus spending on crumbling cities and infrastructure, antiquated air, railways, and failing water systems. He would, begin, he would begin closing 800 plus military bases around the world and bring troops home. He would return the military to its proper role of defending the country. He would end the proxy wars, uh, bombing campaigns and covert operations and coups and paramilitaries. He would end the Ukraine conflict through negotiated peace. He would tighten border security, regain control over the border. He would stop supporting despotic governments and hunters and coups and death squads and repressive regimes. And we've got to say goodbye to WEI now. We'll continue to top the hour. He would cooperate with Mexico and Central American countries to improve economies and provide economic incentives to improve standard of living so people would be motivated to stay in place in their home country. He would pursue a different trade and economic policy no longer encourage financial institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, who are completely corrupt organizations, to demand that developing nations gut their social programs, privatize public assets, and strip away environmental and labor protections. He would dismantle the censorship industrial complex which in which big tech censors, deplatforms, shadow bans, and suppresses people or opinions they disagree with. He would respect the right to privacy and freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures. He'd, re, he'd get rid of the National Defense Authorization Act and the Patriot Act. Uh, he would also do investigations. All the major intelligence agencies 
to bring down to a manageable size probably 90% of the of the deep state, the CIA, National Security Agency, he would preserve the right to assembly, trial by jury, and freedom of worship. That would never happen again. He would end the failed war on drugs and grant amnesty to nonviolent drug offenders. He would shut the school-to-prison pipeline and transition prisons away from a punishable paradigm to a rehabilitation paradigm. He would undo the legacy of the 1994 crime bill that disfavors African Americans and seeks early release for nonviolent offenders. He would reorient the police to serve, not occupy, black communities. And the federal government will work with localities to change police culture with pro-community incentives. There'll be a nationwide network of low-cost for free addiction healing centers on organic farms available to anyone who sincerely wants to heal. He would expand youth programs to make them available to every young person who wants to learn skills while serving society and the environment, the sick and the elderly, and so on. And he would offer free passport cards available to any American citizens who wants one. That's just some of what he would do if elected president. So you're going to set all that aside, all that, because he does not support your particular position on Israel? Okay? So just remember what you would get in return. You get more of Trump, and you'll get more Biden. Is that what you want? Because he would not allow anyone in his cabinet that had those corporate ties that both Biden, Bush, Obama, in fact, wasn't it Obama that we broadcast to? We wanted to know how did all these corporate people get on his his list of, you know, his councils? Because the top person at Citicorp gave him a list of people he should hire, and he did so. So, no more Obama, no more Bush, no more Clinton, no more Trump. Someone who knows the background on everyone and would bring in people like Ed Dowd, who's one of his economic advisors now. Honest people who understand the establishment because he worked for BlackRock, and uh, he knows the truth of things. His entire cabinet would be made up of similar such people. Is that what you want? Do you want to see the things I just mentioned put into practice? Well, that's going to be up to people who pull back, and Jimmy Dore should pull back and take a look at how he's challenging Tulsi Gabbard and Robert Kennedy. Remember, it was Robert Kennedy alone who wrote the definitive book on Anthony Fauci and his crimes and the failure of the COVID vaccine to be either safe or effective and documented in a massive tome. And over a million and a half copies sold of that. And he was attacked nonstop for being anti-vax, yet he was pro-vax, is pro-vax, just wants safe vax. Who else is going to go out there and say that? Not Trump. Not Biden. No one else. So just understand what you're getting. So that way we don't make decisions based upon impulse and looking at someone and judging them completely because they're wrong on Israel. Okay? Because he's right on everything else. I'm Gary Nall. Thank you all for listening. Remember, I'm going to be doing this each day for the next two weeks, taking issues, a wide variety of issues, playing you some clips, and then giving an overarching commentary on them. Have a nice day, everyone.